Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by lawyer, historian, author, and lecturer at the University of Texas, Austin, Robert Eisenhower Ramirez, where I ask, what happened to the racist, fucking asshole dick officials of the American Confederacy after the end of the Civil War? Welcome to Getting Curious. On today's episode, we have an incredible speaker, PhD, lecturer from the University of Texas at Austin, Robert Eisenhower. Now, we're going to be covering a very interesting subject, honey, that is devastating slash interesting slash I think there's a lot of things that we can glean from this uh, even now today because, you know, I think through history, I just get really curious about how we, how it still affects us today. So the question is, what happened to all the generals of the Confederate states after the Civil War? What? Thank God you're an expert in that, honey. You're a historian <laughs> and you are, uh, and you have a PhD with an emphasis in the Civil War, which Correct. that qualifies you as a historian, I guess, right? I mean, you're, oh, yes. yeah. yeah, my PhD is Hello. In yeah. Yes. That's amazing. So thanks so much. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. You're our first uh, Texas guest. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, you're my first getting curious. Oh, wait, actually, that's a full lie because I had Wendy Davis on when I was in Texas last time. So you're actually my second, but that's an incredible person to be second to. So I agree. Right? So, okay, so let's set the stage. The Civil War starts in 1861. Correct. And um, it basically... I think the way that we think about it now, the way I understand it, is like a non-college educated like hairdresser who's 32, who hasn't been in school, you know, in a long time. Um, uh, it's like it's over the issue of slavery and the northern states take the position that obviously like we shouldn't have slavery. The southern states take the position that we that they should. It's too important to their economy. War ends up ensuing. It's from 1861 to 1865 um, when the northern states win. And then my question is, because, like, don't the Confederate states have a president, a vice president, like a fully functioning cabinet? Did they have ambassadors? Like, and then what happens to all of them? Right, right. Well, they did have a a fully functioning government. And uh, Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy. Alexander Stevens was the vice president of the Confederacy. And um, they, uh, Jefferson Davis, near the end of the war, began to try to flee from Richmond. Uh, He was warned by Robert E. Lee that the uh, Confederate Army could not uh, withstand the Union Army for much longer. Uh, Lee advised him to leave the the uh, the capital and try to link up with someone uh, further south, uh, Joseph Johnston's army. And so Davis leaves Richmond at that point at the very end of the war. And um, in sixty five, in eighteen sixty five, and Richmond is the capital. You just said, Rich- right. Richmond is the capital of the Confederacy, which is only about ninety miles from Washington D.C. So both capitals were very close to each other. There was a lot of warfare that went on uh, between those two capitals, and Grant had finally uh, sort of forced Lee into a trench warfare and surrounded. Um, Richmond and Petersburg and was putting an immense amount of pressure on Lee's army. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Yes. 
because you are slaying my life right now, comma, just to set the stage. Because earlier today, I was talking to my um, uh, this amazing person who, but when I said they're British, and when I said, you know, the Confederate states, they were like, what is... Like And I was like, oh, that's like what the southern states were called when they were like going to break away. And so just really quick, Grant is Ulysses S. Grant. Correct. Who was the northern general, right? right. He's a general in chief. And uh, so he commanded all of the armies of the northern states. And then Robert E. Lee is the head of the southern army. Well, he was the head of the army of northern Virginia until the very end of the war when he was made uh, head of all of the armies of the Confederacy, but that was at a point where where he really didn't have much control. Did was that position filled by someone else prior to him? Like, was there a main general of the South before Robert E. Lee? No, it was uh, the commander in chief was Jefferson Davis, who was a president of the Confederacy. And was he a general before the war, or was he a politician? He was a politician. He had some uh, experience as a as a an officer leading a regiment of Mississippi uh, volunteers in the Mexican War. And a lot of the uh, generals involved both North and South in the uh, Civil War had been involved in the Mexican War. And so uh, Jefferson Davis had made a uh, name for himself as a— an officer leading this Mississippi regiment in the Mexican War. He he went on to become a politician from Mississippi. He had served as the uh, head of the War Department, which is a equivalent of the Defense Department today. And so he was a very nationally prominent politician. Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis. And he was from Mississippi. He was from Mississippi. Now, quickly, just quick question, because also setting the stage like prior to this— um, because this is 1865 that the Civil War ends, but America was only began in 1776. That's when we the declared independence. Independence. Yeah, so it's like that was only really like 90 years. So like America is still like a very like young country, of course, in, in the in the time of the Civil War. But like because to also set the stage, like England had outlawed slavery in 1830, I think. Is, Correct. And so, like. Slavery was a topic that had, like, been bubbling and talking about. We learned on Getting Curious um, from this incredible historian in an earlier episode um, about what was it like to live in Philadelphia in 1775. And I had also learned that when I lived in Philadelphia that the first abolitionist group was started in in Philadelphia. And I think it was started in the 1700s. So it's like people were talking about abolition and, like, the evils of slavery in America for, like, you know— a long time, like you know, from the from the beginning of the colony, from from the beginning of America, like in seventeen seventy six, like people were talking about it. So, I guess I'm just saying, like the the talk around it bubbling up and percolating all the way up to the Civil War, and then Jefferson Davis and and the Confederacy being made was like, uh, it it was a really massive thing that was like going to tear the country apart, and that's really. But it was like a worldwide thing. Like people were abolishing it and like dealing with it and talking about it. It was like a cornerstone of life at that time, like slavery. That's absolutely right. Um, If you read the the letters and documents that uh, the founding fathers wrote, um, they recognized people like Washington and Jefferson and Madison all recognized that slavery was evil. And but they didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't. 
uh, have the ability to abolish slavery at the Constitutional Convention, even though a lot of them would have liked to. And But as decades go on, it's very interesting to see a shift in the intellectual uh, thought in the South, where uh, it goes from being an evil that everyone hoped would eventually uh, extinguish itself to being a, a, a positive good in the view of Southerners. And, and that shift it revolves largely around John Calhoun, who was a uh, vice president. He was a senator from South Carolina. And they became uh, very aggressive uh, about slavery and wanting its expansion. And, and so the North um, was wanting to limit the expansion of slavery. And, and so it comes into conflict. And uh, eventually, when Lincoln is uh, elected, he's, he's viewed as an abolitionist, although he was not an abolitionist. But he definitely was an individual who believed that slavery should be uh, restricted from the territories and that were becoming new states. And so because he, he wanted that um, and because he was a Republican, which was largely where the abolitionists had, uh, had you know, become part of the, the political system, uh, upon his election, the South didn't even wait to see whether or not he was going to take any active steps to abolish slavery. They simply seceded at that point. So as Lincoln is uh, elected, like Kansas and Missouri and Texas were all like territories, but were like think, but were like in the process of maybe becoming states, and they were also deciding if they would be slave states. Is that right? Only Kansas was a, was a territory. Texas was a slave state. Missouri was a slave state. Now Missouri did not secede, and and that was one of the things that uh, there were three slave states, actually four, that did not secede. It was Maryland, Delaware. Missouri and Kentucky. What? Yes. And Maryland and Delaware were slave states? Absolutely. Absolutely. Maryland, Delaware were slave states, and they did not secede. Correct. But they stopped using slaves? No, they, they had slaves during the Civil War. And, and that put Lincoln in a bit of a quandary because he didn't want them to secede. So he, was, he had an eye largely on keeping Kentucky in the Union because Kentucky— had a great deal of population. They had a great deal of of horses. They, the, if they had seceded, it likely would have uh, given the Confederate states a huge advantage that they didn't have. So Kentucky also didn't secede. They did not secede. Wow! But then they also didn't have to stop using slaves. No, they didn't. No. So. Just really quickly, this is so interesting, but in 1830, one thing I literally just learned about about Great Britain is that when they stopped slavery, they paid all the slave owners that owned the slaves in the United Kingdom this, like, massive payout. But then really the slaves, like, would go on to work for, I think, another 12 years as indentured servants, like, for free. And so it took, like, 12 more years for them to gain their freedom in the United Kingdom. But the loan that the British government took out to pay the British slaveholders. So families like the um, Churchills and these really iconic, you know, like British families that were super, super rich, they got these huge buyouts from the government to pay them off for their slaves. That 
loan was not finished paid off, being finished paid off by British taxpayers until 2015. (laughs) I did not know that. Yeah. And so I was wondering if like there were, if, if when other countries like were talking about how to get out of slavery, if like, if the American South saw that as a threat or if there was ever like, were there discussions of like how they could like, so when Lincoln gets elected, they just seceded. So there was never really like a negotiating table or was there prior to Lincoln about like, could you do this or could we phase it out by such a time? Like, was there ever a negotiating between the North and the South to try to get rid of slavery? No, no, there wasn't. The South simply was not going to um, to allow for slavery to, to be uh, ended. The, as Alexander Stevens, who became the vice president of the Confederacy, said before the, uh, the Civil War— he made a speech that's called the cornerstone speech, which is interesting that you would use that phrase, um, because he talked about how slavery was a cornerstone of the Southern society. And and so um, there was never going to be a negotiation that would end slavery between North and South. Now, after Lincoln was elected and in an effort to try to emancipate slaves in the North, he suggested compensated emancipation to Delaware, which had very few slaves, and they rejected it out of hand. So uh, so Lincoln it, suggested that sort of model of paying off the slaveholders with tax money. And, right. And they said no. They said no. And he, he made the point that, that a single day of fighting the war would pay for uh, the emancipation of every slave in Delaware. And so, um, and they simply were not willing to do that. So how did it, Kentucky and Delaware and Maryland like end up resolving. So when the Civil War was over, were they like, okay, they're free now? No, the the Thirteenth Amendment ended slavery, and and so as Lincoln had warned them during the war, they should either do something to end slavery themselves, recognizing that it was on the road to eventual extinction and perhaps a very immediate extinction if an amendment was passed to the Constitution. And uh, But they, they would not do it. What kept those states in the Union was a real strong bond with the Union. And, and so th- there were a lot of, of Northerners who, whose primary focus was saving the Union. And, and it's a concept that I don't think we can fully understand today because we just don't have the, the emotion that's surrounding the Union like they did in the 1860s. One thing, I'm so glad we got back there because that was w- one thing I wanted to ask when I got like off track about talking about the founding fathers and like slavery because like my brain went away with me. But that's what I was going to say. Were any of the people in the Civil War, because that was only 90 years later, like so it was a lot of those generals, it was like their parents who were in the revolution because weren't they just like one or two generations later? Correct, correct. So that there was like a very still like, you know, palpable sense of we fought for this independence. We fought for this freedom from Great Britain. And so the the scar tissue and the pain body, as Eckhart Tolle would say, you know, like the residual effects of like, you know, the, the cultural trauma that, you know, the union went through when it went through its revolution was still very much a piece of life at 1860 because it was only 90 years later. Absolutely. And so there, I think that makes sense to me that that is, would be a more difficult concept for us to to feel today. But then now it's like 2020 is only like 100, 200, like 250, 240 years after these events. So it's like the effects and the 
the it's like we just see with the Great Britain, like that loan that was just paid off in 2015. Like there is opportunity cost lost from like from Af- from black people, like black Americans, like the time loss and the money loss from opportunities that they didn't have as a result of slavery. Like we're still they are still paying the price for that now. And really, the federal government has never. It, it, I think that's just like interesting to think about. That it's well, it's fucked up to think about. It's not interesting. It's like there is a real cost to that, and it still definitely affects us today. Not only financially for Black people, but like in how Southern people think about the war and monuments. And so I wanted to go back to how you were talking about uh, the. So when the when America started, when the colonies were started, and we see in writings and letters from like officials and generals, they were saying that it was that they knew that it was evil and that it needed to go towards they needed to get rid of slavery. But then there's like this social shift from it's evil to no, 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 this is a cornerstone. We have to have this in order to to go on. Uh, yes, but I just saw the break sign, but we're gonna go a little bit longer on this break and then we'll take it. Tell me again in like three minutes. Um, or after we finish this point. So well, how did, or actually, we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more uh, Getting Curious right after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. We have Robert Eisenhower, uh, a PhD with an emphasis on the Civil War, historian, lawyer, lecturer, amazing guest. So I was just, uh, we were just saying, it's like, um, uh, oh yeah, how did that cultural shift in the South happen from acknowledging that slavery is you know, fucked up to know this is a cornerstone and we can't lose it. Well, it happened, I think, uh, because of the economics of slavery. Uh, Prior to the invention of the cotton gin, slavery, you might uh, argue, was not an economically uh, advantageous system uh, of labor. But once the cotton gin was invented— Which is— which is in the 1790s, um, it all of a sudden makes the growing of cotton very profitable. And and growing cotton is very uh, uh, labor-intensive. And, and so having free labor, having slave labor to, to do this really, really onerous work um, – became the cornerstone of their economics. It became the cornerstone of their social system. And uh, so it, it really became so important to the South that um, that they began to justify it intellectually as, as being good both for white people and for African Americans. And, um, and so they simply were not willing to ever talk about the abolition of slavery, or even the restriction of it. Uh, they they had uh, begun to demand that it be allowed in every new territory that uh, that was uh, was formed. Whether that was Texas, Kansas, Missouri. What about, like, northern states? Would they say, like, well, we wanted in, like, in, like what would have been, like, was there northern states that were getting created at that time as well? Like- there, there were. Um, Nebraska was going to be... Um, considered basically a northern state. I guess at some point the Dakota territories would would be northern states. And and Southerners would argue that uh, the climate would not allow slavery to thrive there. But Northerners simply didn't want it extended into territories. What Lincoln had said was that um, the North was satisfied that 
slavery was on its eventual route to extinction. And by extending it into territories, by allowing it into the territories, it was simply going to to take away that eventual extinction of slavery. And so he was not willing to to allow it in the territories. That was his position. Was there ever slaves in the Northern Territories? Like, was there ever slaves in, like, Illinois or, like, Indiana? I mean, I know that, like, Delaware, Kentucky, uh, Maryland, and there was one other you said that ended up being considered Northern Territories. It didn't secede, but they saw slaves. But were there other ones? Yes. Now, before the Civil War and, and you know, back at the time of the founding, uh, New York had slaves, uh, Pennsylvania had slaves. Virtually every colony, colony had slaves. And, and so little by little, they began to abolish slavery. And, and you're right. You know, I think Benjamin Franklin was one of the members of the uh, uh, abolitionist society in, in Pennsylvania uh, in the 1700s. And so they began to, to move towards abolition much earlier. By the time of the Civil War, um, the North and South were divided on, on slavery, the North being free, the South being Slave. So it really like so states' rights had been exercised, and in the North they had started abolishing slavery, and then by 1861 it is like a fever pitch. Now, who is the president before Abraham Lincoln? James Buchanan. And what was going down during that time? James Buchanan is uh, known as a doughface. Basically, a doughface was a Northern politician. He was from Pennsylvania, who had Southern sympathies, and he was a Democrat. He was someone who was dependent on the slave states for his election. But Democrats meant something different back then, didn't they? Wasn't there like something and something like Whigs or something and something else? Initially, it was Whigs and Democrats. Democrats and Republicans have sort of switched places today so that the Democratic Party is more progressive, the Republican Party more conservative. At the time of the Civil War, it was the exact opposite. So, at the wait, okay. So at the beginning, it was Whigs and who? Democrats. Whigs and Democrats, and then it became Republicans and Democrats. Yes, the Whig Party uh, simply dissolved. Dissolved, and then <clears throat> so then it was so by the Civil War there was just Republicans and Democrats basically. Correct. But the Republicans were the the more progressive ones, and the Democrats were the more Southern ones and correct. like racist ones. Well, correct, and and the. Uh, uh, Democrats also had a strong Northern presence. In, in uh, And the reason that Lincoln was elected was because the Democratic Party split into two sections in 1860 for that election. You had a Southern Democratic uh, person running for president. You had a Northern Democrat running for president. And then you had Lincoln. And so Lincoln takes advantage of this split. Oh, shit. Let's talk about that more. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So, Buchanan is this doughface who is born Doe in— Doughface. Doughface. But he's born in the North in Pennsylvania, but he needs the slave states to win election. And he's a one-term president? He's a one-term president. And he doesn't run for re-election? He doesn't run for re-election? He does not. And so, he says he's not going to run because he was just like, shit's getting real in here. People are getting mad. He's like, and did people just not like him and he'd fucked up a lot or something? He, um— Yes, he was a very weak president, and neither side was happy with him. So he's just like, I'm not even going to fuck with this re-election because I know I'm going to lose. So he does it, and then three people end up running. Correct. Which Lincoln represents the Republicans, 
And then, which is the more progressive party. So he's basically, he's basically representing like what we would think of as the Democrats now. Correct. And then, um, and then the Democrats run a Northern Democrat and a Southern Democrat. Stephen Douglas uh, of the Lincoln-Douglas oh, Lincoln Douglas debates. Correct. And Was Lincoln beat him. He beat him in but 1860. Did, but didn't Douglas beat him for Senate before? He did. But the Lincoln-Douglas debates was that, which, by the way, every fucking buddy, they happen in Quincy, Illinois, where I'm from. That's where the Lincoln-Douglas, it's true, not even making it up, Google it. Did you know that? Yes. Ah, so, yeah, so um, that happened. And But, so, did that, wasn't that debate for Senate, though, or was that debate for president? It was for Senate in 1858, and, uh there were seven different locations that they debated, and um, they then the the state legislature, whoever won the the most state legislators, the state legislature would elect the uh, uh, the the senatorial candidate, and so uh, Lincoln lost that to Douglas. And so he becomes senator, but then— Douglas does. Yes, but then Lincoln ends up winning the presidential election because essentially the Democrats split their vote. They did. But that was, but they would, but that vote would have been by electoral college too, right? Correct. So, but there was three candidates. Did the Democrats run by, for, as like a northern party and a southern party? So yes. there was three finals that like, was there primaries and stuff back then? No. No. But so those three ended up being the candidates and they split their vote. And so Lincoln, so when Lincoln wins, the southern people are just like, we're out immediately. So is the election in November back then? Yes. So the election's in November, but he doesn't get inaugurated until January. Does that change later? That that changed. Uh, he he didn't get inaugurated till March. Oh, so he gets inaugurated in March of sixty one. Correct. And that's right when the Civil War breaks out. Yes, shortly thereafter. So how did the Southerners secede? They uh, they had they called conventions and uh, statewide conventions. They organized amongst themselves. They. Uh, were very well organized. And as soon as Lincoln was elected, he was known as a black Republican. It was sort of the death knell of slavery to the South. And you have to realize that that the South was full of hubris at this point. They believe— What's hubris mean again? <laughs> hubris means sort of pride mm. and uh, arrogance. I have one more question not to interrupt, but I think it's really important because I think— it, it, okay. Was the election of 1860 seen as a referendum on slavery? Like, were people clear on if Abraham won, the South was going to be like, fuck this, we're out? Or was that, was slavery on the tip of everyone's tongues in that election? Slavery was, but um, there's a shift. The the North fought, many people in the North fought for the Union and not against slavery. So it's it's a mistake to say that everybody in the North was anti-slavery. That simply is not correct. Um, but um, it was a referendum on whether or not the, the Union was going to be broken. And John Breckinridge, who was a Southern Democrat, uh, ran in the South. Lincoln was not even on the ballot in the Southern states. He was not allowed on the ballot. So the only the only people on the ballot were Breckinridge. There was a Union Party, and uh, that was it. And and so they get the Southern votes. Uh, Lincoln basically wins the North and gets enough electoral votes to to win the uh, the general election. But he was elected with forty percent of the of the popular vote. 
So Breckenridge, so it was Breckenridge, Douglas, and Lincoln were the three in that election. Right. And then there was a, a fourth that was called the Union Party. And uh, they had a candidate they, who didn't, I think, won maybe one state. And so then, but it wasn't, but they weren't talking about slavery a lot in that election. Like, was Did people think that there was a possibility of a civil war in the event of a particular candidate winning? Yes. Yes. And they, they recognized that if Lincoln was elected, that the chances are that the South would secede and that if the South seceded, the question would be, do you have a right to force him to stay in the Union? Um, Buchanan, in his final address to, to Congress, had famously said that secession was illegal, but the North had no right to do anything about it. Um, so which, he leaves everyone in such a, like, lukewarm quandary. Correct. Yeah. And and, and Lincoln has made clear that uh, secession, in his view, is illegal. And uh, he had the duty to maintain the Constitution. And so— And so when you say that people are unionists, like, that, like he was really like a unionist. Like, he wanted them together no matter what. And so really that was the— primary issue. And for a lot of people, their primary issue was maybe slavery. And but for a lot of people, it was the union. So because I think for me coming up in, you know, Illinois and, you know, learning history the way that I learned it in school, it's like I always wanted to paint the North with this brush of like, we weren't racist. We weren't biased. We weren't we were the, the ones fighting for the good thing. But I think that's too easy of, a, of an approach to take now. And I also think that that's why so many white people cringe and writhe at the idea of like um, an a racial bias within them because they're like, I'm not racist. Like, I'm from the North. Like, I couldn't be like, but it's like, no, no, no. Like, your family has had one and you maybe do have a racial bias that you don't even realize and we don't need to cringe at that, but that really is what white privilege is, is to realize these historical implications and how they very much color our world to this day. Because if you think about how, like, we couldn't grasp uh, the idea of a unionist the same way today. But still, if you think about 90 years separating the the founding time of America to the Civil War, and then like 250 years between now and then, that still permeates. Like the, like the, the scar tissue and the pain body and the culture around those things that were going on still exist in different ways today. You can't say that like, well, that was 250 years ago. It doesn't in- impact us anymore. I think it just totally is not that you were saying that it doesn't, but I'm just like, you know, pontificating here that like, how could you think that it doesn't? And parlaying into that. So when in the, in the, when they succeed or when they secede, what were some of the things and the attitudes that the South maintained against slaves and and ideas that they held around black people? Well, they, they uh, considered them to be uh, inferior in every way. And uh, it um, so yes, they 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 believed that their their role was uh, was justified to be a slave because they were they were not uh, equal to white people. but the the fact is, as you said, that that most people in the North did not believe that either. And and so you'll find that Lincoln, as you study the Civil War, uh, that Lincoln tiptoes around the issue of slavery because he doesn't want to alienate the the people, the large majority of people who are fighting simply to maintain the Union 
not to free the slaves. And, and Lincoln is a wonderful politician, and he finally uh, comes to the point where he can justify the abolition of slavery, which is some—he had hated slavery his entire life. Um, and there's written evidence of that uh, dating back to when he was a young man. Um, but he can finally justify abolishing slavery in order to save the Union. And that's, that's the tack that he pitches it to the North with because he understands that if he doesn't tie it to keeping the Union together, there are going to be a lot of people in the North who simply say, we're not going to fight to free slaves. Because is, is he saying that like country or states that had voted to abolish slavery will secede and like they'll do their own thing because they just can't be a part of these like slaveholding states? No, they. The, he was afraid that what they were going to do was that a lot of people in the army, generals included, might simply say, we're not going to fight to free the slaves. So we're going we're gonna to leave the, the Union army. And uh, but how did he pitch to the union that this is we have to abolish slavery to save the union? Like the the way he did it was uh, actually I think we'll take a really quick break. uh, But but we'll be right back with more Robert Eisenhower right after the break. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. So we were just saying uh, I was just asking. um, What was I just asking about how he pitched it to the yes? Thank you. He, he pitched it by saying that in order to win the war, which was paramount to the North, they wanted to force the South back into the Union, in order to win the war, that they were going to have to, to abolish the cause of the war. And, and he said, we all know the cause of the war is slavery. And so in order to, to win this war, we're going to have to abolish what the cause was. And and the short answer is that. But it took many months and a lot of effort and a lot of convincing to to sort of drag a uh, reluctant northern public along with him. Because they were just like scared of the war? They were scared of uh, – well, they, they were largely uh, against – fighting for anything but the Union. There were a lot of people who wanted simply to fight for the Union without touching slavery in the South. So, and did you see the movie Harriet? No. Okay, well, in the movie Harriet, you see, so she escapes the South, and then she goes ends up going back to, like, get with her man, like, a year later, but he's already moved on, and she's, like, fucking devastated. And then she ends up, like, getting a bunch of her family back to the North on that trip, but then she ends up realizing, like, she's, like, she starts going back and forth, because she's, like, I gotta get my family up into into Pennsylvania. But then in, like, 1770, and some, I can't remember the year it's escaping me, but they pass, like, the slave, um... Like, the Fugitive Slave Act, right. which allows, like, slave catchers to, like, go into northern states, any territory, and, like, find – what was the deal with that law? I mean, that's, like, a real thing. Yes. Uh, the Fugitive Slave uh, Clause is part of the U.S. Constitution. The Fugitive Slave Act was part of a compromise in uh, 1850 that allowed – Southerners to go into the North, and they seized a lot of free African Americans by claiming that they were uh, slaves that had escaped. And it, it allowed them to go into the Northern states, seize these individuals, and bring them before a magistrate. Interestingly, the South had been behind that the passage of that bill, along with doe-faced politicians. The judge who decided it would get paid double 
if he decided that the person was a slave as if he decided that the person was free. So when they take him in front of the the, the slave or the, the person accused of being a runaway slave in front of a judge, he has the judge has a financial interest in finding that the person is a slave. And the individual who's accused of being a runaway is not allowed to testify in their own behalf. So, so it was designed to make it very easy to seize people and take them into slavery. Were there states that resisted that act after 1850? There were a lot of states that did that. And northern states were absolutely appalled by it because if a marshal coming from the south ordered you to go and assist in, in capturing someone he thought was a, a fugitive slave, you were forced under the law to do it or you could be jailed. So, so Northerners, and that, that's where the idea that the South was a state's rights kind of, of government or is view, wrong because they were wrong. down to violate other states. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. It, it became states' rights after the war when, when they realized that they had been fighting for slavery and it sounded much better to, to nuance it into states' rights, in my opinion. But they were trampling on other people's rights. Oh, absolutely. In the pro- and, well, not only slaves, but like other states. that would. So what did other states pass laws after 1850 to counter, like to nullify the Fugitive Slave Act or, or like defend their borders from marshals or anything like that? They tried to, and, and that was being litigated in the courts as they tried to do it because they tried to pass laws that would, that would nullify uh, this particular act, which they found to be appalling. So were stories like the the story of like twelve years a slave, where like you see, you know, there's a black man who's like kidnapped. He was he was a free African American, and then they you know sell him into slavery, and then it takes him a long time to win his freedom back. Did stories like that get back up to the north? Like were other were white people and politicians like appalled at these stories, and were they talked about in the press and the media? Like you know violations of the Fugitive Slave Act, as far as like people selling free people, and and that basically being like, I mean, obviously there was obviously a a legal slave trade that was going on but was it known that they were using that law to make an illegal slave trade on absolutely. top of the legal one absolutely so for the unionists and then the abolitionists like wasn't that just like a slow like was that getting the unionists to fight for the abolitionist cause was that was that were those sort of laws and those sort of instances like the persuasive things over those months and was that what Lincoln would use to get people to come over to his side? Well, what Lincoln used more than that even was the fact that if you freed the slaves, then uh, you were going to take that that huge group of people who were working uh, for being forced to work for the Confederacy away from them because they would suddenly flee to Union lines. They would they would try to get they were so thirsty for freedom that they were going to go to the first blue coat that they see. And uh, if you made it known to them that they were going to be free, you were going to be taking away that labor from uh, from the South. And the Confederacy was so dependent on the labor, their white men were fighting. So if, if you take these individuals off of farms and plantations, you take away their ability basically to fight. And uh, the, the, the Southern states suffered very heavily once the Emancipation Proclamation was signed and, and allowed to come into law because uh, African Americans wanted to be free and they would flee uh, as soon as the Union Army got near. So what, what, so what was the Emancipation Proclamation? The Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order 
uh, that Lincoln issued in 1862 that said if um, southern states don't come back into the Union by January 1st, 1863, he gave them several months, if they didn't come back into the Union, every slave that was held in the territories that were still fighting and under southern control would be free. And he said forever free. So he had put his neck on the line, uh, not knowing whether or not the next president might simply uh, rescind, it. rescind that order and put these people back in in slavery, which meant that he, he was very interested in getting a constitutional amendment uh, to, to abolish slavery. So he passed – so he does the executive order in 1862. Did any states come back into the union as a result of that? Not at all. So no one takes the – no one does that and fighting and, – and battles were already going on when he does that order. Absolutely. And they continue to rage. Sure. And then in 60 – so then in 65, Fort Sumter was the last battle, right? No, Fort Sumter was the first. Oh, Fort Sumter was yeah. the first. Yes. And then it was – which was the, la- the, the treaty at something-something where Robert – Appomattox. Used- Okay, and so one more time. Appomattox. Appomattox. And that's where Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant come together and they sign a peace thing? No, uh, Lee simply surrendered his army there. So he surrenders, and, and what happens? Well, um, at that point, the, the best-known Confederate army has surrendered. Grant writes out a, uh, an agreement that if Southerners would simply put down their arms and go home, that they would never be bothered by the federal government. He had been given that uh, okay by by Lincoln just a few weeks before in a meeting. Uh, and, and so Lee surrenders. He goes back to Richmond. And um, the war is not quite over, though, because there's still another large Confederate army that has not surrendered. And so that army surrenders after Lincoln's assassinated. And mm. uh, Little known fact, I don't think people realize that. Right. So so Lee surrenders in 65? In April of 1865. And then Lincoln is assassinated? Five days later. What? Yes. Yeah. I don't think people realize that. Yeah. He, he uh, uh, the surrender was uh, five days prior prior to him being assassinated at Ford Theater. So the the when is the when did the, what day does he surrender? He surrenders I believe April the 9th. April 9th and of then 1865. Like, and then like April 14th Lincoln is shot Correct. in the head in front of Mary Todd at that theater. Ford Theater. And and the and, ho, and and oh god that's like another podcast I can't get sidetracked. So he gets assassinated. And then his vice president was Andrew Johnson, who was a Southerner. Yeah, who was a Southerner. And wasn't he the only Southerner who decided to not secede and stay with the Union senator or something? The only senator, yes. Um, But there were a lot of Southerners uh, who were Union men, just like Johnson. But the, the interesting thing is that talking about what happened to people after the war, Lincoln had made it clear that he didn't want retribution. He wanted people to surrender. He wanted them to go home. He wanted them to be left alone. He would have thought that if Jefferson Davis had been able to escape the Union to get to Canada or to get to England, it would keep uh, the, the North from having to deal with that issue. Once he's assassinated, Johnson who has a personal hatred for Jefferson Davis um, and has said that treason must be made odious, 
wants to have these Southerners hanged. And so um, by assassinating Lincoln, the South really put their own leaders in jeopardy because Lincoln would not have sought to uh, to hang their leaders. But the South didn't really have anything to do with that. Wasn't John Wilkes Booth just like a crazy asshole? So John Wilkes Booth was a Southern uh, sympathizer. And and he he had been in Richmond uh, before the war, um, so he he had a lot of ties to the South, and some of his conspirators had ties to Richmond. So there was a little bit more than than him. So just that could being have been crazy. a coordinated hit. It it could have been. They were never able to prove it. Um, but but John Wilkes Booth um, initially wanted to kidnap Lincoln, but when Lincoln makes the speech. Uh, that he makes just an impromptu speech um, after Lee's surrender. John Wilkes Booth is in the audience. Lincoln talks about how African Americans who served in the army ought to be allowed to vote. And and John Wilkes Booth turns to the person next to him and says that's going to be the last speech he ever makes because Booth was uh, a very strong Southern sympathizer and believe that that African Americans should never have any rights. So as the so when he so the Thirteenth Amendment does Lincoln live to see that pass? He does, and he actually signs it, even though the president doesn't need to sign it. He had it brought to him, and he signed it. And when it, when does that pass? That's passed in January of eighteen sixty five, I think. And so, and was he up for reelection that year? No, he had he had won reelection in November of eighteen sixty four. Oh, he had won re-election in 64. Then the war is over by, like, April-ish. But so then he gets assassinated five days later, and then that imperils all the Confederate officers. And so then Jefferson Davis, who, wasn't he, like, a racist-ass fucking guy? Jefferson Davis was, uh, like a lot of Confederates, he was he was a racist. Yeah, and, but, but, a he, was a union, but he was a union. So he was on the side of, in the beginning, when you were saying, like, you know, there was unionists and then there was abolitionists, like, you know, on the North, right? Like, some people were fighting more, like, to keep the union together. Some people were more fighting, like, because they wanted to abolish slavery. Now, you're talking about Jefferson Davis or Andrew Johnson? I'm talking about just, like, Northerners generally. Okay, yes. And so then... Andrew Johnson, the vice president, he would have been like a unionist, but like a Southern unionist. Oh, yes. He was He was pro-slavery. He did not believe that African-Americans had any real rights. Uh, so did he just, but he thought that, but he agreed with the abolishment to the extent of like, well, you know, yeah, slavery is, I like, yes, black people are inferior, but uh, we should just get rid of this to appease our, our friends up here who don't like it. But he agreed with it? I don't know that he agreed with it. I don't know that he had much of a, a role in the passage of it. He was vice president at that point. There was He was not, he was really pretty much of a minimized politician until after Lincoln's assassinated. But what did he think about slavery? Oh, he was not anti-slavery. But he didn't, but he was okay with, but he agreed that the South should get rid of it to to keep the union together? I think that he believed that um, that the South ought to uh, that it ought to be abolished simply to win the war as a war objective. So, but he didn't think that slavery 
because so Lincoln gets assassinated, and then so then what happens with that other con- that arm, other Confederate army that was that hadn't surrendered yet? Eventually, they surrender to William Sherman. Who's that? Uh, uh, William Sherman was the guy who marched through Georgia and burned all of the the towns. So but he was like another northern general. He was right under Grant. He and Grant were very close, and they were both the the team that sort of defeated the South. And then, um, so that happens. And then, what does Jefferson Davis take for? Like, did that promise of, like, if they stopped fighting and put their guns down from that point of the second surrender and go home, did that still stand for, like, typical soldiers? It, it stood for soldiers. It did not stand for, for civilian politicians. And so Lincoln had met with Grant and Sherman and had told them that if Davis escaped, he'd be fine with that. He didn't tell them directly. He told a story. But but it was very clear that that's what he meant. Then uh, Davis is trying to flee the Union, trying to flee the United States. But once Lincoln's assassinated, people think that he's involved in it. So they seize him and they they put him in jail for two years, charge him with treason. And uh, eventually that case is dropped. But, um, you know, it's Andrew Johnson who's actually after him. And he just doesn't like them because they were trying to break up the Union? Or was there other animosity? Like Johnson? There, yeah. Johnson had personal animosity. Johnson was illiterate till he was an adult. Jefferson Davis was very well educated. They were both in the U.S. Senate before the war. And Johnson had uh, was a tailor. What state was Johnson from? He was from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And uh, during a speech, Jefferson Davis— um, according to Johnson, insulted Johnson and his intelligence, his education. Jefferson Davis didn't even remember ever making a speech that that would have insulted Johnson, said that he would not have done it intentionally. But Johnson took great offense at it and hated Jefferson Davis from that point on, even when they were in the Senate. So after the war, he wanted John, uh, Davis tried for treason and, and wanted him hung if, if he could. And so it ends up getting dropped because because Johnson goes on to become the first president who ever gets impeached and doesn't get removed from office by one vote. But it turns out that vote was like totally bought and super corrupt and stuff. So that's interesting. But he so but he is also a one term president. He is. So he's from sixty five to sixty nine. Right, and he's not elected. You realize? Oh, I mean, yeah, he, he's never elected. So he, but he is. You know, he sits out the remainder of Lincoln's term. Oh, which would have been from 64 to 68. 64, right, until the beginning of 69. And then who wins in 69? 69 is— 68, but takes over in 69. Grant. Grant. Oh, Ulysses S. Grant. Right. Oh, yeah, interesting. So then what happens with, like, the Jim Crow laws and, like, and all of that stuff? Because doesn't that really pick up at that point? Well, initially, um, under Johnson, the South— has their own politicians who, for instance, uh, Alexander Stevens, who had been the vice president, he's imprisoned from May of 1865 until about October 1865, I think. He goes back to Georgia, where he's from, and he's promptly elected to the U.S. Senate. And, And Johnson is fine with that. He's fine with these former Confederates coming back and, and governing. And, and the, the, Radical Republicans like uh, 
Stevens and and Ben Wade and all of these radical Republicans in in Congress said, no way, we're not going to let people who just seceded get reelected and come back and and pass laws. Right. And and so during that time frame, which is called presidential reconstruction, a, a lot of black codes were passed, and black codes restricted the rights of of African Americans to uh, to contract for labor. Um, there were vagrancy laws. They, it, it was just What's a vagrancy laws. A vagrancy law is basically a law that allows a sheriff to arrest you if they say you don't have any uh, sign of employment. So that you might be walking down the street as an African American, and they say, "Look, you're not at work. You're coming to us uh, to jail." And they would pass a law that and would do forced labor with like jail people. Exactly. Or they would contract you out with your former plantation owner. And so it was an oppressive code that state legislatures passed. Almost immediately after the Civil almost War. Almost immediately. And and that's when the radical Republicans said, no, we're not going to allow that, and actually occupied and divided the the southern states into military districts. And it was, I heard one of your former uh, uh, podcast uh, guests talk about how once the, uh, the election of 1876 uh, ended, that Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes, withdrew the Union Army and the South basically just was able to, to reestablish white rule. And that, that's what happened is that the, the occupation of the South ended uh, with that election and uh, oh, so the radical Republicans are like, no, 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 no. And so then they go down and they occupy, and that goes on from 1869 to 76. It's it's before 1869, probably 1867 to uh, 1876. And then they put they put an end to those codes, but then around 76 they start again. At that point is when the the these laws that yes the the white uh, power begins to reestablish itself. And so people like Alexander Stevens, after that, is elected governor of Georgia. So they don't let him serve in the Senate, but then he does end up becoming governor. Right. And and he during the interim, he's elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, where he does serve. So, you know, th- there's a lot of, of people who had uh, been part of the Confederacy and high up in the Confederacy who all of a sudden are, are back in the U.S. Congress, so no one really in the in the cabinet of the Confederacy like had long term like paid repercussions. No one uh, like federal time. Well, I guess some of them did. Well, uh, very short, very short amounts of time. Uh, there were a couple of of Confederates, Stevens, uh, John Reagan, who was a uh, postmaster general, who served a few months in jail and then were released and never prosecuted. Jefferson Davis, if anyone, served the longest amount of time in jail. He served two years, and then he's released on a bond, and the case is dropped in 1869. By Johnson. By Johnson, by his attorney general. And then who, like, do they all go on to lead, like, quiet lives? Do they all go on to be kind of racist as fuck and, like, perpetuating more racist legacies? It just depends on on who the individual is. Jefferson Davis actually struggled financially. Um, he had lost his plantation or or the economic sort of viability of it, and um, so he he goes from job to job. But he's never he's never really punished for leading 
the nation, uh, you know, into a war that that cost eight hundred thousand lives. Eight hundred thousand lives. That's that's the figure that historians now believe uh, is accurate. It's a lot. It's a lot of people. It's in in terms of the United States today, it would be in the multi millions. So, wow, that is just staggering, you know, to think about. So I see people who ended up becoming like repentant and were like trying to do good after the war. Like, did any of them become like good people? Yes. Uh, And they paid a price in popularity. One of them was James Longstreet, who was a uh, a Confederate general right under Robert E. Lee. Lee had called him his old war horse. He was a, a great general and very popular during the war. After the war, he uh, begins to say that, you know, they need to reintegrate into the uh, into the Union. And so he's he's seen more as a collaborator and, and his reputation suffered because of that. And he suffered socially because of that. And then also in the movie, Harriet, you do see, like, the people who, like, were the subject of, like, the plantation that she escapes from. Like, they end up—they're suffering with, like, financial stuff, and they—I think they would—the uh, story probably would have gone that they end up losing it, but you don't get that far. But—or maybe you do, but there does seem like there's, like, a Downton Abbey-ness to—like, you know, a lot of these plantations, like, are falling apart, and the the labor and, like, all the just the, the fucked-up business model— has has now cost a lot of them their land, but there are some of them that are still going on. But it does seem like it becomes more unstable. I also wanted to ask about voting. What was the deal with voting for after the Civil War? And John Wilkes Booth says that that's the last speech he's ever going to give. And Lincoln says, you know, if people were soldiers, they should really be allowed to to vote. But at that time, women still can't vote no matter what color they are. That's correct. But he says that, you know, black male soldiers should have been able to vote. Was it still white male property owners only allowed to vote in the Civil War, or was it just white men, period? White men. So white men, and then and then is it Johnson that says, when does the three-fifths rule start? The three-fifths rule was, was part of the original Constitution. And so by the abolition of slavery, um, it actually expands the representation of Southerners because— Every individual is now counted as a whole person. So from 1776 until 1865, black men could vote in the South, but it only counted for three-fifths? No, no. From 1789, passage of the Constitution, until 1861, um, black people were not allowed to vote. But representation was apportioned as if each black individual was three-fifths of a person, which gave the South um, a, a uh, advantage numerically because otherwise, if you're just counting white people— um, There wasn't enough. There weren't enough. But did but, the white people get to cast the vote for their slaves or something? They didn't get to cast the vote for their slaves, but but they would have a disproportionate number of representatives— because when you did a census, oh. you know, if there were 100 people in, in New York and 100 in white people in New York, 100 white people in Virginia, well, you also counted the 100 black people who couldn't vote, and you would count those as 60. So Virginia would be given 
representation for 160, New York would be 100. So it oh, was, so you're talking about, oh, yeah, because we're a representative democracy. Right. So they it, they never got to vote. It was only for census the three-fifths rule counted. Right. And then for the apportionment of representatives, which is with the electoral college the way it is, it means that they had a, a much bigger uh, – influence on elections than they should have justified by their population, if yeah. that makes sense. But then after that, it became one-to-one. And then at this, when did black men get the right to vote? Well, um, they got the right to vote in certain areas right after the war, but it was taken away um, through these laws that, that we've talked about. When did they get reinstituted? Well, in the 1960s with the what? Civil Rights Act. Sure. So it wasn't sure. until 1963 that black men had the right to vote? No, no. You had a legal right to vote, but it was very difficult to exercise it because there would be poll taxes. There would be literacy tests. And the people administering the literacy tests would be white people. So if you went up, they would ask you a series of questions. If if you couldn't answer them, you weren't allowed to vote. And, and so there were a lot of legal hurdles to them voting, despite the fact that they had a legal right to vote. Does that? Yeah, absolutely. So really, when we think about so because I grew up, you know, hearing white people justify and saying that racism is no longer an issue because slavery was 250 years ago. But when you think about the the real I mean, voting, voting as a, you want to talk about cornerstone, voting as a cornerstone to democracy and to being an American, to thinking of ourselves as American, like the American values that we fight for. It's like democracy, your right to vote. That was infringed upon so fully in all of these ways. And voter suppression is still an issue because there's a lot, the 13th says that like, you know, felons can't vote. So there's certain states where like, if you ever have been convicted of a felony, you will never get to vote again. Right. I think Alabama, like there's 30% of the adults over 18 can't vote because, and a lot of those felonies are like for marijuana possession and just like stuff that's, you know, also racist. Um, yeah. So I think the voting situation, that is crazy when you, th- I mean, the, that is just such a, a long effect imprint of slavery. So, okay. Now back to the question when I interrupted you of what did we not talk about that we need to And then we have to wrap up. Okay. Um, After the war, um, the the South made a concerted effort to to make it look like uh, the Northern Reconstruction and the aftermath of the war was really terrible for the South. And you'll have books that were written in the 1920s by Southern historians, by Northern historians too, calling it the Age of Hate, where, where it was just a terrible time for the South. And it really was not a terrible time for the South. You know, nobody was hung after the war except one person. That was for a war crime at Andersonville. The leaders of the Confederacy were not um, were not prosecuted. Um, the South basically reacquired the, the white power that it had prior to the war. So the idea that Reconstruction was some terrible uh, infliction on the South is simply not a true fact, historically, in my opinion. And then, oh my God, we, we're going to, we literally have to have you back. We got to have you back to talk about more. You're just so incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah, I can't wait to read all of your book, Treason on Trial, The United States First Jefferson Davis. Um, Robert Eisenhower, thank you so much for your time. I just had so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I guess 
fun is a weird way to say it. I learned so much from talking to you and what an eloquent speaker you are. Well, thank you. I had fun. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Robert Eisenhower Ramirez. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and show them how to subscribe, please. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Julie Carrillo, Emily Bosick, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson.